Well, this evening we, uh, as I mentioned before, we're concluding our series on the Lord's Prayer, which is, I just feel like we're getting going in this thing, but uh, we are on the last petition. And actually, it's I made a mistake. It's, it's wrong in your bulletin. It's not Matthew 14. It's Matthew 6, 13 that we're looking at. So I, I misled you. Sorry about that. But yes, we're looking at Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. Uh, and, you know, I just can't say enough about what this has done for my prayer life in these weeks looking at the Lord's Prayer. First of all, it just helped give me language. It's expanded my prayer language for praying the heart of God. It's also helped me see more of what I really want out of life. I thought, you know, I know what I need. I know what's good for me. No, I, I know that what's good for me is what God says is good for me. And that the Lord's Prayer has helped refine that in my heart. The main title of all six of these sermons has been... What has it been? Oh, changing the world one prayer at a time. Changing the world one prayer at a time. We are a people of action, and to a large part, we are a church of action, aren't we? The whole thing I just shared about Parkview Elementary earlier on, this is stuff that we're active about. But our action is rooted in Christ. Our action is rooted in prayer and listening to where Christ would have us act. So, changing the world one prayer at a time is quite appropriate. First of all, because the one to whom we pray is the world changer. The living God. The one who created the heavens and the earth. Every time we pray this prayer, we're confronted with the good news that God, who is our creator and master, is also our loving Father. The one Jesus tells us to call Abba, or Daddy. We pray that His name, His very character, would be made known throughout the entire world. That His kingdom would come in fullness and displace evil structures of, uh, of darkness and kingdoms that stand against His. We pray that His will, His good pleasure would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then with our eyes, our hearts and our minds focused on God, Jesus teaches us to pray for the things that we need. For our daily bread, the necessities it takes to live day after day. He says, pray for forgiveness as you forgive other people. And today we're on the sixth and final petition. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Martin Luther, it was said, uh, used to go to bed praying the fifth petition. Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then he would rise each morning and pray the sixth petition. Deliver us from evil. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I don't know if he actually did that. It was said about him, but it sounds like a good idea. If we are actually, genuinely asking for forgiveness, you'll remember from last week, if we're really sorry about what we've done wrong or not done, then we want more than forgiveness deep down, don't we? We want to become the kind of people who don't need to keep asking for forgiveness. Deliver us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation. As soon as I read that scripture, though, Matthew 6, 13... Our Father, who is in heaven, do not lead us into temptation. I have a question. Would the God of the universe, the one that Jesus calls Daddy, 
actually lead us into temptation? After all, Holly just read James 1. And in James 1.13 it says that God does not tempt anyone. So what's going on here in the scripture that we have today? Is this a contradiction? Would our good Father really tempt us? Well, I think the answer lies in the Greek word behind that English word temptation. The Greek word is parasmos. Now, it's hot in here, and you're falling asleep already, so everyone just say parasmos. Parasmos. Very good. Parasmos can actually mean two things, and guess what it could mean? It can mean temptation, or it can mean testing, trial. And there is a world of difference between those two words. A temptation is an enticement designed to make somebody fall, to make them slip up. The one who presents a temptation is motivated by malice, by the intent to do harm. Tempting someone, tempting someone is not an accident. So we had a jam session on Wednesday night. We had not just uh, the normal uh, people that participate in the worship team, but anyone who could partly carry a tune. I was even there, and as Nathaniel will tell you, I cannot carry a tune, but I made a joyful noise. But anyway, there was a bunch of us here playing instruments. Joan, the cello was beautiful. Uh, and we were singing and having fun, doing Beatles songs and other things. After this, we had pizza and soda, and I asked a certain someone, Hey, would you like to take this soda home with you? And this person said to me, Ooh, I'm really trying to cut out processed sugars from my diet. You know, I could see that there was a, a draw there to the soda, but I said, Oh, I'm sorry. Now, I made a simple mistake out of ignorance. I had no idea that this person was trying to cut soda out from their diet. In my ignorance, I may have presented this person with a test. But I did not mean malicious harm. I was not trying to cause anyone to fall. So I was not presenting a temptation. I was not presenting a temptation. See, a test is altogether different. In fact, God, throughout Scripture, tests lots of people. In fact, I think He continues to test us. For example, think of Noah. Noah's this guy who lives in a desert, and God tells him, Okay, Noah, guess what? I'm going to make it rain so much that it's going to flood the world as you know it. And in order to escape this flood, you need to build not just a boat, but a 400-foot boat. Did I mention he was in the desert? 400-foot boat in the desert, and I'm not done yet. You need to get two of every kind of animal that exists to your knowledge, put them on this boat, and bring enough food for all of them. Okay? Just go ahead and do that, Noah. Are you serious? Are you serious? In the middle of the desert? Can you imagine how Noah's neighbors must have looked at him? He was presented with a test. His obedience proved, proved his faith, his trust in God. And it actually grew his faith. God presented Noah with a test of faith. Think about Joseph from the Old Testament. This is the guy who was, had all these grandiose dreams that he was going to rule over his brothers. He's the youngest brother. And his dad kind of favored him. And he said, I'm going to rule. I had these dreams. I'm going to rule over my other brothers. And so his brothers were so jealous that they had a plan to kill him. And eventually what they did is they sold him off to Egyptian slave traders. Sold their own brother as a slave. For 30 pieces of silver. Sold their own brother as a slave. Now, 
could God have intervened and protected Joseph from this awful thing? The God I know can. The God that can split the Red Sea and do all kinds of miracles and multiply five loaves and two fish and to feed 5,000 people. That kind of God could have rescued Joseph. But He didn't. Why did God allow such trials in His life? I think that's the wrong question. That's the question I always ask when stuff happens, but I think it's the wrong question. I think the right question that Scripture wants us to ask is how? How did God use Joseph's trials? How did He use these tests? Joseph's faith was tested and he responded by growing in character to the point where he could lead an entire nation. Tests or trials are good things because they prove our character and can improve our character. Tests or trials are good things because they prove our faith and they can improve our faith. Now, I'm the first to admit, tests and trials are hard. And when you're going through the middle of them, I'm saying like a bag of hot air. Uh, they are not easy. But they happen. To be human, it says, is to, is to have struggles, to have stress, is to have trials. The question maybe we should be asking God is not, why, but how are you going to use this thing to refine me? Is this a test of my faith? So, maybe some questions we might ask is, how might our struggles and pain be seen as tests? How has God used your pain in the past? What might God be doing in your life right now? Remember, at the heart of life with a capital L, the God life, is a relationship. We can't be followers of Jesus without trusting Him and the same Father that He trusted. Nothing shows us the quality or lack of our trust than trials and troubles. You never know how much you trust God until God is all you have, right? You never know how much you trust God until God is all you have. So which is it? Let's get back to parasmas. Is it lead us not into being tested? Is it lead us not into having trials and tribulations? Well, that doesn't make much sense because as we just saw, testing can be a good thing in our life. In fact, I think if God took out all the trouble in our life, we would never really have an edge to grow on, right? And personally, I think God is much more concerned with our character than our comfort, right? That's a tough thing to say, but I think it's true. So does that lead us not into temptation? I mean, after all, that's what my Bible says in the English translation. Does it lead us not into temptation? But that doesn't really make sense either because God doesn't tempt people in the first place. In fact, 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, The temptations in your life are no different than what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you're tempted, He will show you a way out so that you can endure. How do we, how do we decide then? What does this parasmos mean? Lead us not into the test or lead us not into the temptation? How do we know? Three words. Context, context, context. 
context, context, context. Remember, the sixth petition does not end with a period at lead us not into temptation. Grammatically and thematically, it says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now we're getting somewhere. We're asking the Father to deliver us from this evil one. This is not some ethereal force like just bad stuff or just lack of good. It's literally the evil one. Matthew uses this term to describe Satan all over the place in his gospel. He's otherwise known as the accuser or the adversary. And what happens is the evil one takes those, op- those chances in our life where we're tested and he can turn them in to temptations. So, parasmas, which could mean test or temptation, might be translated like this. Our Father who is in heaven, do not allow our times of testing to be turned into temptations. Our Father who is in heaven, do not allow the times when we're tested to turn into temptations. So let's go back to the soda story. In my ignorance, I offer this soda to someone who's trying not to drink soda right now. I present a test. But the evil one can come in there and tell this person, Oh, that soda looks good. You don't need to follow your diet the whole time. It won't hurt you just a little taste. See, and that's turning this opportunity, this test, into a temptation. In fact, in order to see how this works in Scripture, let me take us back to uh, the first book of the Bible and Genesis, looking at Adam and Eve. Looking at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it says this, then the, Lord took God, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Eat from any tree in the garden. Eat from any tree in the garden. But from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So he gives this command. He tells the guy you can eat anything in the whole garden, except one thing. Okay? And then uh, he creates woman, and they, they hang out. They're living in wonderful fellowship with God. He walks with them, and they, they don't have to work the land that hard. I mean, they eat stuff. It even says that springs of water, water the trees. It's a pretty cool place, right? Garden of Eden. Their only test of faith was just to listen to God on this one thing. Don't eat from one tree. Now, enter the evil one. Here's how the evil one can turn a test into a temptation. The first thing, if you're a note taker, is to sow seeds of suspicion. Sow seeds of suspicion. I'm in Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Now I don't know if he had like a weird sleazy accent like that, but I kind of imagine that he did. Um, So just little subtle seeds of suspicion. Really? Did God say that? Oh, how odd. Just trying to make us question, does the Father really have my best interest in mind? Hmm. Just trying to get us to question the Father's good intent with us. Number two, exaggerate the negative. Exaggerate the negative. The serpent says, Did God say, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? 
No, God actually did not say that. He said you can eat from every tree in the garden except one. But here the serpent, the evil one, has twisted this around and distorted it so that it said, you can't eat from anything in the garden? Exaggerate the negative. Number three, make false deductions, right? So this is what happens. All of a sudden, I, you know, God tells me I can eat from any tree in the garden except one. The accuser comes in, tries to distort the truth, and I start to question, hmm, if God doesn't want me to have every tree in the garden, even that one, He must not really love me. He's trying to hold something back from me. He doesn't know what's best for me. I do. False deduction. Number four is to force the Father's hand. To force the Father's hand. You may have been in situations where you've had to wait on things. That's probably in the West, maybe in just human life in general. That's got to be one of the hardest things. When we have to wait on God for answers or for things to happen. And we want to force the Father's hand. So, gosh, I can remember... uh, uh, Do we we move here or there and say, uh, you know, God... Here's your options, God. Just tell me A or B. When really, God could have a bazillion options open to me, but I just am not willing to listen, so I'm going to try and force the Father's hand and just say, okay, I'll tell you my options and you pick for me, A or B, God. Forcing the Father's hand. Number five, once all this stuff has been distorted, the evil one entices us enough to take matters into our own hands, to where we don't trust the Father anymore. So we just grab the fruit and say, I know best. God's, I know He's trying to hold back on me. He doesn't want what's best for me, so I'm going to take the fruit. And that's basically how it goes down. Take matters into our own hands. It's deceptive and subtle. And the goal of the evil one here is so simple. Evil is so boring, you guys. It is so boring. It's not creative at all. The evil one's whole intent is to get us to question the Father, to question His love for us. The evil one never simply says, Hey, I'm here to deceive you. I mean, that would be easy, right? He always is crafty, and he gets us to do his dirty work. Now, here's another piece of truth that I just hope really ticks you off. The evil one doesn't like you. He doesn't even hate you. He doesn't even care about us. He's really indifferent about you and me. Guess what? We're not even worthy enough to be his enemies. His enemy is the Father. He hates the Father. He hates Jesus. He hates the Holy Spirit. And He will do whatever He can to defile the Father's name and to try and hurt the Father. Now, if you're this weak devil, which he is much weaker than God, not even close, you can't really hurt God in a fist fight, right? How do you get to the God who's got everything? You hurt his kids. You hurt his kids. Every night before bed, I sneak into Sophia and Stella's room. Usually Corey's with me. I just watch them sleep. We recover them up after their restless legs have kicked off the covers. And kiss them. And pray a silent prayer over them. And I think God help the person that would ever come in here and try and hurt them. And that's exactly how your father thinks about you. It's exactly how he thinks about you. And that's exactly why the evil one tries so desperately to turn your affections away from the Father. 
it's not even about you. I know that sounds bad. Like, we're basically just pawns in this game. Just trying to get us to look to the Father. And sometimes, you know, I was thinking about this sermon. You know, it would hurt more. What would hurt me more than someone physically hurting my kids is if somebody somehow convinced them that I didn't love them. Some evil person convinced them that he loved them more than I did. You know why that would hurt so bad? Because it wouldn't be true. And because there's no way I could convince them otherwise. So what we're doing by praying this prayer is we are crying out for help. Father, we are weak. We want to trust You, but we're weak. We want to believe You love us, but we're easily deceived. And once again, you guys, we're confronted by the Gospel in the Lord's Prayer. This is about what God has done. This is about what Christ has done for us. Some of you are familiar with Ephesians 6, that armor of God passage. If you're not or haven't read it in a while, let me just read it real quick. This is a scripture, Ephesians 6, about Paul teaching us the thing about spiritual warfare. And I'm starting in chapter 6, verse 10. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God, so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. That's another word for the evil one. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, which is, uh, with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Okay? Paul tells us to take up this armor. But I think the Scripture's often been misunderstood as something we must do. As if, if we put on these armor pieces, we'll somehow be some match for the evil one. And like, we're going to... I'm a guy, right? So like, I think about this stuff. Maybe, ladies, you think I'm ridiculous. But like, sometimes I think like, yeah, I want to fight. I want to fight. You know, I want to put on this armor and do... Let me tell you what. I would lose. There is nobody who puts on... We would lose against the evil one, right? We are not supposed to just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and go in and fight the evil one. God is. God is. Let me explain this. Sometimes it's been taught that, you know, Paul was writing in an Ephesian prison and that he, when he was writing this letter to the Ephesians, he saw a prison guard who was wearing all these different armor pieces and he wrote, oh yeah, helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness. Actually, nobody really knows if that's true at all. But one thing I do know is true is that Paul, who wrote this, was an Old Testament scholar. And one of his favorite books is the book of Isaiah. And every single piece of this armor, save two, are represented in Isaiah 
Isaiah's book. The other one's in the Proverbs. Let me run it down for you. The belt of truth. The Apostles' language alludes to Isaiah 11, which declares of the Messiah, "...with righteousness shall be girded around his waist, and with truth around his sides." Jesus is the one who offers us truth through grace. The breastplate of righteousness, this is from Isaiah 59.17, where Yahweh, the God of the universe Himself, puts on the breastplate of righteousness as He comes to deliver His people and punish the nation's enemies. Listen. God then calls us to live righteously, and He will win the day. This is not us going to battle to pound it out with people. The footwear, this is from Isaiah 52.7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good tidings, who publishes peace, calling us to proclaim not our own strength, but the strength of Christ. The shield of faith. This is from Proverbs 30, verse 5. He's a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Once again, our shield of faith is our trust in God for deliverance, not our own might. The helmet of salvation. Isaiah 59. Oh, if you haven't read Isaiah 59 lately, read Isaiah 59. God is calling His people. I'm behind you. You're in captivity. I'm behind you. Go out. Defeat your enemies. I'm with you. And the people turn their backs on Him. They're willing to be remain slaves even though God is willing to give Himself for them. And this is what our God does. He puts on the armor in Isaiah 59. And He goes to battle. This is, this is the gospel in this, right? I'm going to wrap it up. I'm going to wrap it up. I'll show you. <laughs> you stay with me now. Helmet of salvation. God puts on the armor. He goes to battle for His people. And finally we get to the sword of the Spirit, which is the only offensive weapon in Ephesians 6. But it's still not in our strength. It's the sword of whom? The Spirit. It is the sword of the Spirit. The Spirit makes the sword effective. And what is the sword of the Spirit? Ephesians 6 says it's the Word of God. So this doesn't mean that if we say the right words or if we end every prayer in Jesus' name, that we're somehow going to bring the evil one down by our words alone. What the sword of the Spirit is, what the Word of God is, means that we as God's people trust Him for the victory and the words we proclaim are the victory that Christ has already established. He's already, he's already won through His death on the cross. The Word of God that we're to proclaim is that Jesus is Lord, despite of what things look like. We spread the good news that there's freedom from the evil one's oppression and addictions through faith in the work of Jesus Christ. Even more telling that Ephesians 6 is full of gospel, what Christ has done and not what we're supposed to do, is the end of it. More talk than all the armor stuff is this. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf. That's what Paul is saying. Now why pray on Paul's behalf? So he, the spiritual giant, can put on the armor and beat up the evil one? Not even Paul is challenging the evil one with like armor. He 
wants us to pray, or He wanted these people to pray for Him, so that He could proclaim the gospel that the evil one's already been defeated by Christ. And so now we're back, full circle, at the Lord's Prayer. This all comes around to prayer. How do we defeat the evil one? We let Christ do it. And we pray that He would deliver us. The Greek for deliver is almost a violent word. It's snatch up. It's like if your kid or somebody you love is in the middle of a freeway and there's a truck coming, you just grab them. You might even have to hurt them to do it, but you just pull them out of the way. This is the word deliver. And we're just praying, you know what God? I can't stand up to temptation very well. I'm weak. Deliver me. Even if it's a little rough, snatch me out of the way. Because I want to honor you. I want my allegiance to be with you, Father. And the evil one just keeps putting voices in my head and trying to draw me away from trusting you. And I can't stand up to that on my own. I need you to deliver me. Deliver us. Deliver our world because we're easily deceived. When you can come to the point of saying, I need to be delivered, you're in a good place. You're in a very good place. You're in a gospel place. And that's where Jesus meets us right now. I don't know what it is that you're fighting against. Maybe it's certain temptations in your life. Maybe it's anger and resentment, stuff we were dealing with last week. But when you can get to that place and say, I cannot handle this anymore, as strong as you think you are, if you can get to the place where you say, I need Christ more than anything. This is it right here. Christ is in this place, waiting to deliver us. Maybe He wants to deliver you right now. I know He does. Let's give Him opportunity. Would you pray with me? Jesus says, as a man, no, just as a, as a human being, I confess, I want to be able to do more than I can do. I wish I were stronger. I wish I were stronger for other people too. I wish I were enough. To rescue myself and to rescue others. I thank you for the the freedom it is to say, I'm not. Deliver me. Lord, for every person here who is at the end, every person your Spirit has drawn to a place where they realize 
need deliverance. Lord, won't you make that tangible? Jesus, won't you be Lord? Won't you be the master of our lives? And not us. Thank you that we can trust you. Thank you that you're more than strong enough to deliver all of us. As a continuation of our prayer,